Always when I say welcome, I, I kind of take pause because welcome is such a big deal for the, the programs we run in prison. We take great pains welcoming people. And in, in a sense, the, the whole practice is about welcoming, isn't it? And, but it's not a formality for us in the sense of it's well of you to come. What we're, really, what we're saying is, yeah, you forgot who you were when you committed your crime. You forgot. And you've come back here to remember. And all of us come together here to remind each other. Because we all forget. And that's a very different way of holding that than to say, uh, you're forever your crime. You're forever a murderer, a rapist, a thief. Right? I mean, you also, you know, a lot of us don't extend our hands and say, I'm, I'm a divorced person. Right? Just because that happened to you. So we make a distinction between um, saying, you know, identifying people not just by what they've done, but really by who they are. So I can't help but wanting to extend that to everybody here as well and, and play a little bit with the whole metaphor of being in prison. Because just as much as welcoming is part of our, uh, our meditation technique, uh, what we face in terms of our own conditioning uh, can be very imprisoning. Um, the, the, have some of you been able to see some of the photos near the door there? So that's, I want to welcome the man in too, you see. And so... Um, I thought I'd bring some pictures. And, uh, and so um, I've started, uh, let me back up a little bit. So my name is Jacques Verdun, and um, it's interesting coming back here, which you know, the few times I do, I'm always moved about the fact that um, my work started here. You know, Jack at some point made an announcement quite innocently, we laugh about it now, uh, to the community about, let's do something for the prisons in in the area. And a number of us responded, and I'm the one who stuck with it, I guess, or it stuck with me. And I founded the Inside Prison Project, which um, runs about 20 different classes a week in San Quentin alone. And it's also uh, with its uh, victim-offender education program in a number of other prisons. We've been sent out. We've actually got hired by the State Department even. I think an intern found us on the Internet (laughs) to uh, uh, advise um, governments and prison officials on programs. Um, but the real work here is in California because for a good 30 years the uh, mission statement of the department was to punish only. And so our mission statement was to change their mission statement. And so indeed, 
partially, I think, through our insisting. It is now the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. However, I think they've spent more money on changing the stationery than on programs. That's the sorry part of that. Um, almost two years ago, I uh, retired from being the executive director of Inside Prison Project and set some new outfit up called Inside Out. And Inside Out uh, hires former prisoners to go in and work with youth on the other side of the pipeline. Right? We take what we've learned on our side of the pipeline and implement it on the other side. And we also uh, aspire to go into other prisons and train our brothers and sisters that are still in prison. Um, training in what, you may ask? Um, I would say mindfulness-based programs. There is a program called GRIP, Guiding Rage into Power, which uh, deals with stopping your violence. Because really nothing else can start unless we learn how to stop our violence. Emotional literacy and mindfulness. And so the idea of the network, uh, the California Prison Mindfulness Network, which is the third piece of Inside Out, is to uh, really actively support sanghas within our prisons and um, advocate for um, groups, classes, and retreats in prison. So we train volunteers several of them I, I've seen here tonight, to go into prisons and uh, offer the practice of mindfulness uh, in yoga as well as meditation. And uh, uh, it's a very exciting thing to me, you know, to, to know that this is a growing network of sanghas that is happening in our prisons. And, and it's, you know, taught... Uh, not as a Buddhist practice, but it's taught as a mindfulness practice. And it's open to whatever the God of your understanding is. And it's really powerful to see, uh, you know, men and women embrace this uh, quite innocently and then, you know, stumble upon the gold, right? So... Um, particularly uh, when we are able to do retreats. Uh, so, you know, it is, it is, I feel it's part of, of my task because I'm, I'm in between, right? I'm part of this sangha and I'm part of these prison sanghas. To inspire people to come and volunteer and also financially support uh, the uh, growth of... Um, Sanghas in, in our prisons. And, you know, very much with the idea of, um, you know, reminding yourself that, hey, somebody um, tipped me, right? Somebody encouraged me into this practice. And, and, and if it's as precious for you as, as it is for me, it's, it almost becomes a certain responsibility to give it away, right? To, to Particularly to underserved, multi-ethnic, incarcerated populations that otherwise would never have access to this. 
you know, there's these two malls, right? And, and then there's that building to the left called San Quentin. And, uh, we, you know, we race to these malls, but whatever that thing is, it's just sort of what it is. It was to me, too. Um, so, yeah, to open that up, you know, to, to the true experience of Sangha that doesn't stop for nothing. Um, so we're held in prison, right? That's the verb. You're held in prison. There's, there's holding cells even. If you're really acting out, you go into a holding cell. So that infers that your container doesn't work and your anger spills out and you're put in prison. So then... <clears throat> The idea is to build a new container and to use the practice to do it. So that means uh, a few things. It means learning how to hold your horses so you don't fly off the handle, impulse control piece. And, and mindfulness is very powerful that way. It's kind of the mother of all interventions, I say sometimes. Because... Uh, you literally make a shift from a blind reaction to a cultivated response. And there's a little gap that opens up where you get to become mindful and say, oh, okay. So that, it also means holding yourself dear enough to care enough, which is something a lot of us are doing time on, I think. And it's something actually that's quite hard to teach because it, it takes a, a, an acute willingness in yourself to want to hold yourself dear enough to care enough. And that's really the core of what accountability is about, which is much the buzzword, of course, in rehabilitation programs. And then it's also related to, to that which is held wants to be felt. And again, our practice touches on that, right? You find these spaces in your, in your sentience, in your feeling body, that just want to be known, that just want to be felt. Not a whole lot more, but not a whole lot less either. So that's some of the, the things we talk about, about being held, and how to transform that. We talk about the two kinds of pain in the sort of cause and effect piece. You know, there's a, a piece of what's called original pain, right? We, we're all challenged with a hand of cards, and some of the cards are painful. And nobody gets to shuffle the deck, have you noticed? So, showing up for those cards, learning how to go in, through, and out a traumatic experience is something that uh, we practice. We call it sitting in the fire. And it isn't as tough or macho as it may sound because it comes, it, it has to move through the heart. So it's not about manning up or sucking it up, mind you. It's, it's about burning clean and leaving ashes. Because the alternative, and this is then the second kind of pain, is that 
in order to avoid feeling that original pain, you cause more pain. It's karmic pain. And it can easily be a lifetime. And then when, when you come around, just because you've created a bunch more drama, it, your original pain hasn't disappeared. So it doesn't work, in other words. Otherwise, you could really consider it. And so, um, learning how to sit in the fire and learning how to burn clean and leave ashes uh, has a certain intensity in San Quentin uh, that it may not have in other places. There's um, a moment that we study that we call the moment of imminent danger, which is whenever you're challenged or whenever you're about the flash or triggered, buttons pushed, right? Several ways to call it. It's the moment between anger and violence. It's also the moment between craving and using. Tiny little moment, right? Very important to identify. That's the other acronym, right? Imminent danger, ID. When we started my last group, my last uh, Guiding Rage into Power group, we went around the room. There were about 23 guys. And, uh, and the question was, how much time have you served? You know, everything, juvies, county jail, state prison, feds, whatever you've done. And we added it up you know, on, the, on the whiteboard. And we came to 551 years in the room. Just chung. We had a moment of silence over that one. Then we went around and asked, how long were you in your moment of imminent danger You know, uh, that led to your crime? So people said, you know, well, five minutes, ten seconds, two minutes. So we added that up and we had 41 minutes and 40 seconds. 551 years. And so, this is a sales pitch, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, then somebody else said, uh, we should also add how many lives were lost. 18 lives were lost. Um, so, we start with committing to stop our violence. Um, and violence is very much looked in a, on it in a broad way as well as in some very practical way. The, the broad way that sort of links us to the Dharma is in our world, we have it reversed a lot. We have mind over sentience instead of mind serving sentience. Right? We have, because we have mind over sentience, we, have, we can justify polluting the planet. We can justify hurting other people people in other countries. Um, and, and what if mind could serve sentience? And what if violence was looked at as that which happened when mind didn't serve sentience? It's a little abstract, but there's a lot to it. So there's a pledge that uh, we take of, of 16 points when you start the program. It's a 52-week program. And um, 
I'll read a couple of them that might uh, be true too for those of us not behind the walls of San Juan. So the pledge is something you, you uh, commit to studying, and then after the program, if you studied it, you can take the pledge uh, for a lifetime. So I'll just read a couple of them. I pledge to learn how to respond rather than react by learning to mindfully observe my experience through regular practice so I can make wise decisions. I pledge to treat my physical body with care by not overworking or overdoing. I will seek to find a balance between time to work and rest. I pledge to take responsibility for how I regulate my emotions, understanding that ultimately other people never make me feel the way I feel. Or this one, I pledge to become someone who seeks to understand more than someone that seeks to be understood. guy uh, in the class once, pretty build-up guy. He was a, what you call a shot caller for the grip, Crips. And a shot caller is basically somebody who's in charge. And uh, he was sitting there with his arms folded and not saying very much, but paying attention somehow. And he got into the work. And, you know, we pair up the lifers with the shorter sense men so they have apprentices. And at one point he raised his hand. I said, what? He said, I got it. I said, you got what? He said, hurt people hurt people. Like, whoa. And then his apprentice, uh, and so this, this guy's nickname, by the way, was Warlock. So this other guy, whose nickname was the Hulk, um, raised his hand and he said, I got some too. I said, well, what did you get? He said, healed people heal people. He said, and I know because this guy is my teacher. And both of those men shed tears over that. And it was like, wow, you know, eight words described the whole program. Hurt people, hurt people, heal people, heal people, right? Because guys get to do their work, too. They, uh, you know, we, we deal with uh, unfinished business. Right? We do role plays, guys write letters uh, to people they have unfinished business with. And uh, there's veterans too in the group sometimes. And so this veteran wrote a letter about his father um, having said at one point to him, Well, you, you were a mistake. And he carried that his whole life. And his, his, he, by writing the letter, he found out that his whole life has been a compensation for that one statement. And he joined the army. And uh, his, uh, his uh, general that he served was sort of a surrogate father person. And so he writes in the letter... And he was with the special, and it wasn't wasn't the SEALs, the Army SEALs, but it was with the Marine Special Corps. 
went on 128 missions. No matter the risk involved in any mission that came down the line, I volunteered for it in an attempt to gain the general's praise. I made it an absolute imperative that I not fail him or my team. I was not any more brave or heroic than the other man. However, I needed his approval more than the other guys on the team did. In the end, I failed those men and my surrogate father. My entire team was killed on our last mission, to include my cousin Dave, who I thought of as a brother. 128 missions, and on the last one gone, every one of them, my entire family. Five men whom I had known for over 20 years and served with for 10 of those years, gone in less than 90 seconds. Then shortly after that massacre, while on leave stateside, I met Dr. Newfield, another father figure, whose approval I sought. How else could you explain it? Questions with no answers, or am I afraid the answer to those questions make me the very thing I spend my life avoiding, not being a mistake? So I walk around with a mask on. To do otherwise would mean I would have to face the reality that I have failed so many people on so many levels. I can't help but think about what Dad said as I sit in my prison cell. You were a mistake. So, you know, hard as it is to face this kind of stuff, uh, it is also very uh, healing to do so in, in a group of people and read those letters out loud. And of course, you know, I think we have something like a million and a half veterans coming back, right, bringing the war back with them. They're not detrained, by the way. Um, but there's a lot of power in disclosure. You know, the demons reign on the inside, right? Shame is the currency in prison, right? Now, it's not that different on the other side, too. When, you know, when we work with the kids, um, we encourage them to uh, express themselves as well. So here's a few lines from uh, a 15-year-old Latino girl by the name of Montserrat. And she read this poem in one of Michael Mead's workshops that we joined with a group of our kids. Sometimes I just don't know what to write about or how to express myself. It's like I just shut down. I got to be motivated to write, to speak my truth and believe you won't stop me. Yeah, I'm on that revolutionary shit. East Oakland, that's where I'm from. Yeah, I bang not for Norte or Sur. I bang for change in the hood. It ain't easy out here. Gunshots every day, nonstop. It's like a daily routine. A thing that would never stop. All my homies gone. The ones that were like brothers to me. Like kids getting shot for no reason. Rest in peace, Carlitos Nava. Rest in peace, Fernando. Rest in peace, baby Arim Lawrence. My homegirl, Monica, was raped and burned, left the baby behind. Sometimes I ask myself, would I make it till I'm 18? Why is it that Oakland's so violent? I'm a Latina educada from the barrio and proud, just trying to get some knowledge in my brain instead of rolling a blunt. I got too much love for my hometown and the block, but it's just that I'm afraid I might be next. I'm trying to make it to the top and fight for what's right and what's not. I want to escape to a different place, a new world, 
where there won't be no violence, where I wouldn't be afraid to walk the streets by myself. I just want to be someone in life and show them I did it myself, with nobody's help. A solid female from the hood, that all the bullshit and struggles I went through didn't stop me from dreaming. So, you know, the power of facing, right? We in, in prison we say you, you can run, you can hide, you can fight, or you can face. And, you know, when you begin to face, it's where your power comes to you. And this is really at the heart of the practice, too. Um, so a lot of that is what, uh, what Dostoevsky calls becoming worthy of your suffering. Like, how do you live your life? You, you, you've been given some, and you've doled out some. Uh, how do you live your life? You know, being worthy of that suffering. So, Longfellow said that if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find sorrow and suffering enough to dispel all hostility. And this is, you know, I, I believe that, and I think that holds true. But it takes a very active curiosity to want to know the other. Because, you know, there's this invisible anatomy of class, right? Just because your skin color, your geography, your tax bracket, you're cut off from whole slices of life. And what's scary is, you you might forget. You might not know that you don't know that. So we also work with victims. And the first time we worked with a victim, I met this woman uh, named Radha. And it was at a dinner party, and somebody sort of parked us next to each other. And she told me that uh, her son was killed, her 21-year-old son, my roommate. And I said, you know, this is about 10 years ago. I've been uh, going to San Quentin for about 16 and um, I said, I need to know more about that. W- will you tell me? She said, yeah. So we, we went for walks on the beach, like five, six times. And she told me every bit of it, you know. And at her home, she showed me the, the newspaper clippings, you know. She, she told me, you know, the, you don't get the body. The coroner has the body. Because that's the law, right? What to do with the ashes? I mean, every detail. You just want to go home and hug your kids, you know, when you hear that kind of stuff. So I took a few breaths into that and thanked her. And then she said, well, now I want to come where you work. I want to see what you do. I said, really? So I asked the guys. I've been sitting with a particular group of lifers for about... Ten, 10 years at that time. And uh, they said, yeah, we'd like to invite her in. And so she came in, and it was really special to see the interactions there. She was a Jewish mom, so she kind of ended up adopting the whole group. <laughs> but there were very beautiful interactions between the man and her, 
because you know a lot of the men have a need to speak to their victim, but by law and for other reasons, it's not possible. So she sort of became the surrogate victim for these men, and she brought in a quilt. She had a quilt made for her son with a year for every year of his life, 21 squares. And, uh, and so I saw this quilt going around the room, touched by hands that had taken lives. And she said, well, quilts are for touching. You know, that's what I want to do with it. And um, a couple of months later, uh, one of my guys said, hey, I think it's the anniversary of her son's birthday or her son's passing. That's what it was. So you know something's clicking when somebody has that detail, right? And we checked, and sure enough, it was 10 years exactly that her son was killed. So I said, well, we should do something. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, what, what, what? So we said, well, we should make a quilt. (laughs) And the guys were going, oh, no, 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 no. I don't do embroidery very well. So there was some uh, creative angst there. But we did it. And we used materials that you could only use in the prison, uh, find in the prison. So one guy had his favorite pocket of his favorite visiting shirt that he took, uh, pieces of pillowcase, piece of mattress, uh, you name it, right? Piece of jeans. And we cheated some because we used glue. <laughs> but, uh, but we made this quilt and, um, and then invited her in and had it covered and unveiled it. And she just wept because there was so much care put into it. And she could feel it. And it hangs in her house now, just like the other quilt. And then it didn't stop there. It's, you know, it just keeps rippling. Um, we had a particularly great warden in those days, and Rada and some of the other victims uh, that started to come in were, um, were granted the, uh, <coughs> the possibility of cooking a meal for Thanksgiving, a home-cooked meal. And Sanquin cuisine is a bit of an oxymoron. You know? <laughs> Cancels each other out, right? Kind of like military intelligence or something. But so that was very rare to get a real meal in there. And so I asked a number of people that had come visited throughout the year to come to the meal and wear formal wear because nobody ever does that for these men. So we were in a basement past a row of 12 urinals and set the table. And of course, by the time all the food was cleared through security, it was all cold. And Rada had thought about that. And she had a hot a thermos bottle of gravy that she brought. And I thought to myself, that's love right there. Hot gravy. So everybody got to speak what they were grateful for, and everybody wept. <laughs> it was just too big. And it was an incredible Thanksgiving. 
And then it didn't stop there. You know, she learned how to become a mediator. She went and had a dialogue with her offender. She now counsels, grief counsels, other people that have lost lives. So amazing things happen. Elie Wiesel says, um, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how one uses it. If you use it to increase the anguish of others or yourself, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So close your eyes for a moment, if you will. And uh, maybe there's something in your own life that needs some compassion. It's kind of easy to get excited about other people's heroic stories. But maybe you're pushing yourself a little too hard, no? And have been doing it for a while. Or maybe there's some grievance asking you to be worthy of your suffering and let it go. into that space <clears throat> and just feel it, you know, sit in the fire of it, just take a bite out of it, don't have to do the whole thing, but just take a bite out of it. there's something in the body that says yes to this kind of attention, then pledge yourself to come back to it. Just to feel it until it's felt. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.